0: Well, good morning. Hope you're doing well. My name is Matthew. I have the privilege of serving as the teaching pastor here at Life Point Westerville. And listen, you have picked a great Sunday to be here because we're kicking off a brand new teaching series going through the book of Revelation. And I feel like starting out uh, pretty new here, I'm being thrown into the deep end of the pool, and they're trying to figure out whether or not I can swim or not. <laughs> But we're going to be spending the next 10 weeks doing a deep dive into what I believe is one of the most challenging and one of the most controversial books in the Bible. But I'm really excited for it and looking forward to to going through this series with you. And here's the thing, because... This is such a a challenging book to understand and to to make sense of. We're providing some resources for you to help you as we go through this series together. And one of those resources that we're offering to all of our church members across all of our campuses is our LifePoint Drivecast. So each morning, Monday through Saturday... There's going to be a five to seven minute uh, devotional posted from one of our um, teaching pastors on our podcast, and we're going to be going verse by verse throughout the entire book of Revelation over the next few weeks together. So I would just encourage you, subscribe to that podcast, give those a listen each day. It's an easy thing to knock out on the way to work or the way to drop off your kids in the morning, and I really believe that they will be a helpful resource for you as we walk through the book of Revelation together over the next few weeks. You know, I wonder, what, what comes to your mind when somebody mentions Revelation? Like, when you hear somebody talking about what, what comes to your mind, for some people, it's the apocalypse and the end of the world and the earth on, on fire. Uh, for some people, it's angels and dragons and the Antichrist. For, for some people, it's timelines and dates and prophecies, and they're trying to predict, okay, when is all this going to happen? But for me, when I hear about Revelation, this is what I, what I think of. Kurt Cameron and the Left Behind series. How many of you are familiar with uh, with Left Behind? All right, a good number of you. If you're unfamiliar with with Left Behind, it was a series of books and then poorly made movies in the early 2000s that were loosely, and let me emphasize, loosely based on the book of of Revelation. Uh, It was all about the end times and the rapture and the Antichrist, and growing up as a kid, this was my education on the book of, of Revelation. This is how I learned all about, about Revelation. And as a 10-year-old, as a I mean, I had a lot of confidence in my understanding of, of Revelation. If you would have asked me a question, I would have given you an answer. I knew how the world was going to end, how it all play out, what it was going to look like, when it was going to be, all because I had read these left-behind books and watched a, a couple of these movies. And as a kid, I just kind of assumed, man... All Christians must think and and believe the same thing about the end times and Revelation as I do. Everybody must be watching left behind as as well. But then I remember I went to seminary after I graduated college, and I was introduced to all these different opinions and interpretations about Revelation that I had never heard before. Like growing up in in church, like I was never introduced to, to, to any of these. And these different opinions and interpretations They were coming from some really, really smart people who have a PhD and a whole bunch of other letters after their their, their name. And they they loved the Lord, and they knew the Bible a whole lot more than I did, and they had all these different views and interpretations. And I remember graduating from seminary with very little confidence in terms of what I believed about Revelation. Like, all I knew was, Jesus is coming back, Satan is going to lose, and I'm on the winning team. Like, that, that's why I knew about Revelation, but when it came to all the isms and the predictions and timelines and the years, I had no idea anymore. And if I'm being honest, this is a, a book in the Bible that I have intentionally avoided teaching during my time in, in ministry. And it's not because I don't think it's important And it's not because I don't think Revelation is inerrant or inspired, but because there are just so many questions and so much confusion surrounding it. It's a book that a lot of people have really strong opinions about. And it can cause a lot of debate and division and friction within the church. But as I've been preparing for this series over the last couple of weeks and spending time reading through Revelation and studying and looking at different commentaries, I've been reminded how important, how crucial this book is for those of us who follow Jesus. You know, many people assume Revelation, it's just about the end of the world. It's just about what's going to happen at the end, whether that's in 10 years, 100 years, 1,000 years, it applies to the future. There's not a whole lot of relevance and significance for our life today. But here's what we need to understand this morning. Revelation, when rightly understood, rightly interpreted, it changes how we view not just the future, but even our present reality. It's a book that changes how we live our lives today. And here's the big idea that we're going to be kind of emphasizing each and every week throughout this series. Revelation is more about a present hope than a future calendar. It's more about a present hope for us now as believers than it is about a future and calendar. It's meant to, to comfort us. It's meant to confront us, but its intention was never to confuse us or to give us a, a timeline with dates. You see, Revelation is less about when Jesus is gonna return and more about what we are to do and who we are to be as followers of Jesus as we're waiting for him to one day return and to establish his kingdom here on earth. What we learn from Revelation is that we can have hope today because we know how the story ends. We can flip to the end of the book and we know that Jesus wins. We know that Jesus returns. We know that he's going to establish his kingdom on earth. And because we know how the story ends, even though we don't know when it will end, we can have hope and confidence today as followers of Jesus, as believers. So, what I want to do this morning um, is first, we're going to do kind of just like a high level overview of the book of Revelation the who, what, when, where, why when it comes to this book. And then we're going to dive into chapter one and chapter two and unpack that a little bit. So, let's start kind of general high level overview. As we're starting this series, we're going to be in this for a while just to kind of set the tone for what you can expect and, and, and help you understand what Revelation is and what it isn't. So, the first thing is this okay, who wrote it? who wrote the book of Revelation. Now, there are some books in the Bible where the author is a little uh, confusing and we don't have a whole lot of clarity on where they don't like come out and just state who who wrote it. But in Revelation chapter one, starting in verse one and two, we are explicitly told who the author is. Listen to what it says in verse one and two of, of Revelation chapter one. The revelation from Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. He made it known... By sending his angel to his servant, John, who testifies to everything he saw. That is the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. So Jesus is communicating this revelation to John through his angel. I know it's a lot, but that's what he's doing. He's communicating revelation to John. And who is John? Well, it's the same disciple that we read about in the gospel accounts. The disciple who referred to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. Jesus' closest friend. Jesus' closest disciple. A guy who was a, an author of several other of our New Testament letters. And at this point in John's life, he's a really, really old man. Most suspect he's, he's probably somewhere in his, his 80s. He's the only of the original disciples still alive. The rest had been been murdered or executed because of their faith in Jesus. And he's at the end of his life, and he's receiving this revelation from Jesus, and he's writing it down. The second thing is this. Okay, what is it? What is revelation? Well, first and foremost, it's a letter. Just like Galatians or Ephesians or Corinthians, those were letters to churches. This is a letter. And it's a letter written to the seven churches in Asia. These were literal, historic churches that existed back in the in the day. They're not symbolic. These were actual churches, believers who gathered together. Which means that today, as we read about this letter that was written a couple thousand years ago, we need to take into account the historical context of what was going on in the world, and those cities, and those churches, and in that culture, in order for us to rightly understand and interpret Revelation. So it's a letter but it's also prophecy. Early on in, in, in Revelation, we're told that the purpose of this prophecy is to show us what must soon take place. Now, there's a lot of opinions about must soon take place, what that means, like how soon is that, but we need to understand that, that Revelation, it's not a, a prediction of what's going to happen. It's not like when you're guessing how the, the Super Bowl is going to play out, you're guessing the score. No, it's a declaration of this will happen. This is how things are going to unfold. Jesus is going to return. So it's a letter. It's prophecy. And it's an apocalypse. Now, when you hear apocalypse, you probably think end of the world, um, some movie about like a meteor that's, that's headed towards, towards planet Earth. But apocalypse literally means unveiling or disclosure. Jesus, he's pulling back the curtain for, for John, and he's allowing John to see past the, his present reality, what's physical, what's right in front of him, into this unseen realm. He's giving John this heavenly, eternal perspective of what is going on here on earth. So it's a letter it's prophecy telling us what's going to happen, and it's apocalypse. It's pulling back the curtain and allowing us to see into this unseen realm. Third thing is this. Okay, when was it written? We know John, John wrote it, and we know what it is. Okay, when was it written? Most likely, the book of Revelation was written sometime between A.D. 92 and 96. And a guy named Domitian was the emperor of Rome at the time. And Domitian was not a good dude. He hated Christians, he was persecuting them, having them arrested, having them put to death, and he commanded that everybody in the Roman Empire worship him as Lord and God. Everybody had to declare that Caesar is Lord. This guy was on a power trip, an ego trip. He wanted everybody to worship him and to to, to sing his praises. So that's when it was written, sometime during his, his reign. Our next question is this, okay, where was it written? Well, in Revelation chapter one, verse nine, we're told exactly where this letter was written. It says this, I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus, was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. So John, he's writing this letter, he's receiving this revelation and writing this letter from the Greek island of Patmos. And why is he here on this island? Is John on vacation? Is John enjoying his final years of retirement on this this beautiful island? Though he is on this island because he had refused to acknowledge anybody as Lord other than Jesus. So when Domitian said, hey, you need to worship Caesar as Lord, John said, no thanks, not interested, and he was arrested and exiled to this island. And this is where he was going to spend the rest of his life. This island is where they sent criminals who were deemed enemies of the state. I mean, think like Alcatraz, like you're on that island, you're not getting off. That's where you're going to spend the rest of your life. So that's where John is writing it from. And then finally, why was it written? What is the purpose of Revelation? How can you just kind of sum it up? What was the purpose? Simply put, the, the, the purpose of Revelation is to encourage these believers in these churches to continue to endure despite the persecution that they're facing. John is saying, hey, hang in there, hang in there. I know it's tough. I know your friends are being murdered. I know you're afraid for your life. I know the the fire is just being turned up and they're out to get you. But listen, Jesus is coming back. Jesus will one day return, and you are on the winning team. And while things may not seem great on this side of eternity, rest assured, Jesus has given us victory over sin and over death, and you are on the winning team. That is what John and Jesus are communicating to these believers in, in 2000 years ago and to believers today all across the world. So, in the opening chapter, chapter one, John, he's given a, a glimpse. of of Jesus in in all of his glory. Now, obviously, John had seen Jesus when Jesus was was here on earth, when Jesus had taken on human flesh. He walked with him, talked with him, he ate with him. But now, he is seeing Jesus in his glorified, resurrected body, the King of kings, the Lord of lords. And it is a much different experience than when John saw Jesus on earth. And John, he tries his best to to explain for us what it was like being in the presence of Jesus, experiencing Jesus in all of his glory. And he uses these images to try to describe what it's like because he he can't find the actual words. So you'll notice he'll say things like, he was like this or it was like that. Because the only way he can think to communicate to us what it was like was to put it in earthly terms that we can somewhat wrap our mind around. So listen to what John says when he sees Jesus, but as Jesus begins to speak to him. Revelation chapter 1 verse 12, it says this, I turned around to see this voice that was speaking to me. And when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, and this is a reference back to to the book of Daniel in the Old Testament, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet with a golden sash around his chest. The hair on his head was white like wool, as white as snow. And his eyes, they were like blazing fire. His feet were bronze glowing in a furnace. And his voice was like the sound of rushing water. And his right hand, he held the seven stars. And coming out of his mouth was a sharp double-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in all of its brilliance. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead." I mean, John is passing out in just horror. He is overwhelmed at what he's experiencing. But then Jesus placed his right hand on me and said, do not be afraid. I'm the first and the last. I'm the living one. I was dead, and now look, I am alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death and Hades. So John experiences this revelation the curtain is being being pulled back he's seeing Jesus for who he is and all of his glory and he is overwhelmed by what he's experiencing and then Jesus begins to speak to John and tells him hey I have these messages for these seven churches and I need you to write down what you see and what you hear And these messages for these churches were really all about evaluation. Jesus was evaluating these churches based on their spiritual condition, the condition of their heart. He wasn't judging them just on their external actions, but by their beliefs and by the motives in their heart. And he's saying, hey, here's how you're doing. Here's how you stack up. Now, I want you to imagine that you're in the fourth grade again. And you're sitting in class. It's the last day of, of the semester. You're getting ready to go on to, to winter break. And the teacher's passing out the report cards. You're about to find out how you did in math and history and science. And you're thinking you're about to take your report card home to mom and dad. And you're going to find out whether you're getting grounded or you're going to Outback to celebrate. And you're getting a little nervous. But all of a sudden, your, your teacher skips your, your, your desk goes up to the front of the class, pulls out your report card, and begins to read off your grades in front of all of your classmates. Now, for some of you, back when you were in fourth grade, that would have been a moment of great pride. You would have been looking around, feeling real good about yourself because you were that straight-A student with perfect attendance, and you are like, man, I'm awesome. For some of you... That would have been a moment of complete embarrassment and humiliation. And you would have had your head down and gone home that day and asked your parents if you could, you know, transfer schools or go be homeschooled because you could never go back to, to class again. These churches are essentially being given a report card. They're being graded on their faithfulness to Jesus. And their grades and their scores are being posted for everybody else to see. In fact, they're being recorded in scripture, in God's word, that's going to last for eternity. People have this forever. And what we're going to see is these churches were doing some things really well. They had areas they were excelling in. But then they had some areas where they were, they were failing a bit. They were falling behind. They were doing things poorly. They received some, some mixed reviews. And here's how, how this is relevant for, for us today. And here's how this is relevant for us throughout this series. As we look at these different churches that Jesus is going to address, I think we'll recognize that there are some things in our life, when it comes to following Jesus, that we're doing really well, that we're excelling in. And just like Jesus does with these churches, Jesus will encourage and affirm us in those things, and say, hey, keep going. You're doing great. Press on. Keep enduring. Keep enduring. But there's also gonna be some things in our life that maybe we're not doing so great in. And Jesus is gonna confront us on those things. He's gonna challenge us. He's gonna correct us. And the question that we're gonna have to ask ourselves today and throughout this series is this. Are we willing to place ourselves in a posture of humility to receive the word that Jesus has for us? If he's challenging us, if he's correcting us, if he's calling out things in our life that aren't the way they should be, will we humbly receive the word that Jesus has for us? So today, we're going to look at the first church that Jesus addresses. And we're going to be going verse by verse in Revelation chapter 2 through the first church that that Jesus has has a message for. So in Revelation chapter 2, starting in verse 1, it says this, To the angel of the church in Ephesus write this. These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. So Jesus, he begins by addressing the church in Ephesus. And what do we we know about this church? Well, for one, it was one of the, the most influential and significant churches in the entire world. It had been planted by the apostle Paul. Uh, It had been taught by guys like Timothy and Apollos and even John himself. So they had been mentored and pastored by the greatest church leaders in church history. These are the guys who started the church and were pouring into them. The church was also located in one of the most prominent cities in the world. See, Ephesus was a a capital city. It was a crossroads of civilization. It was a center for, for trade and commerce and for travel. It was also the center for, center for uh, worship for the fertility goddess Artemis. It was this city filled with these religious cults and all kinds of, of sinful practices. The best way I like to think about it is, man, take Vegas and take New York City and kind of combine them together. That's what this city was. It was Sin City. It was a, a place for business, a place for travel. There was a lot happening in this city. And this church had been started here and was growing and thriving in one of the biggest cities in the world. And listen to what Jesus says to them in verse two. He says, I know your deeds, your hard work and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. So Jesus, he, he starts by, by affirming and encouraging these believers. Man, this is a church that is working hard and remaining faithful, they're active in their service. They're advancing the message of Jesus. They actually have actions to back up what their beliefs, to back up their beliefs. They're not just consumers who are taking and taking, but they are contributors. They're contributing to the kingdom. They're contributing to their church. They were also sound doctrinally. They knew God's word. And they had a firm understanding of Christian doctrine and Christian theology. They were very discerning. They knew how to to spot out false teachers and and false doctrine. They weren't swayed by those things. So they knew the right things, and they were doing the right things. They had this this balance of, of knowing and doing. They were putting into practice what they actually believed. They weren't just filling their head with knowledge. They were actually doing something. And listen, that's that's the balance that we want for you. We want you to know God's word, to study it, to read it, both individually and also in the context of community and a life group, where you're surrounded by people who are helping you learn and helping you grow. We want you to know God's word, but we don't want it to stop there. We want you to do something with it. Our goal isn't just to fill your head with more and more knowledge, because if it stops there, that's not discipleship. We want you to put into practice what you're learning. We want you to be serving. We want you to be living on mission. We don't want you to just be consumers who take, but contributors who are advancing God's kingdom, who are advancing the the church. Maybe that means for you serving on the, the connections team. Maybe it means serving a life point kids or life point students. Maybe it means going on a mission trip, but you are putting into practice what you're learning. There are actions to back up your beliefs. And this church, they were excelling in that. They knew God's word, they knew truth, but they were doing something with it. There were actions to back it up. And then listen to what Jesus says to them in verse three He said, Look, you have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. Despite the intense persecution and opposition that they were facing, they have persevered. They've endured. And they had seen so many other churches swept away by false teaching, or closed their doors out of fear because of persecution, but they have stayed the course. They have not grown weary. So here's this church. They're faithfully and passionately serving. They're using their gifts to make a difference. And they have sound theology. They know God's word. They know doctrine. And they have persevered. They have endured. They have not given up. And you hear that description and you think, man, what more could you want from a church? I mean, it sounds like straight A's across the board. Let's end it there. They're doing an awesome job. They're the example for all of us to follow. But listen to what Jesus has to say to them next in verse 4. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. What is Jesus talking about? What is the love they've forsaken? They have forsaken the love they had for Jesus when they first turned to Him for salvation when they experienced God's grace and mercy in their life for the first time, and they turned to him not out of duty and not out of obligation, but out of immense love and gratitude for who Jesus is and for what he had done for them. You know, I remember the the first time that I truly experienced God's grace and mercy in my life. You know, I had grown up my whole life knowing about it, knowing God's loving, knowing God's forgiving, knowing that God is is gracious. But it wasn't until I was a sophomore in high school where it finally clicked, where it went from knowing that God is loving to actually experiencing and receiving God's love in my life. And when that happened, I remember just the the love and the affection I had for Jesus in that moment and then the the months that, that followed. I wanted to be with him, I wanted to spend time with him. I wanted to, to serve him. I wanted to tell other people about him, not because I had to, but because I wanted to, because I loved him. And listen, when I'm talking about loving Jesus, I'm not talking about some deeply emotional response. You know, last week we talked about how a, an emotional response isn't always an indicator of a, of a real response. Like some of us, we're just not wired that way. We're not emotional, and that's Okay. Like crying is not an indicator that that you love Jesus. No, love for Jesus is, is this overwhelming sense of awe and wonder and gratitude for who Jesus is and for what he's done. But you see, over time, if we've been following Jesus for a while, if we're not careful, that love that we have for Jesus, it can begin to fade And it's often replaced with duty and obligation. And we end up substituting intimacy and closeness with Jesus for activity for Jesus, where we're doing a lot of good things for Him. We're going to church, we're serving, we're in a life group, we're giving, we're doing a lot of things, but we aren't spending real personal time with Him. We have a full schedule. But an empty heart. And there's no longer this deep desire for relationship because we have forsaken the love that we had at first. And when this happens, you and I, we we essentially become professional Christians. It becomes a job where we're just punching the clock. We're doing the right things, and we're saying the right things, and we're believing the right things. We're checking all the right boxes. But it's coming from a place of duty and obligation, not coming from a place of closeness and love for Jesus. Have you ever been there before? Are you there currently where you're working hard for Jesus? You're putting in a lot of effort. And you know God's word, you know good doctrine, you know theology, but if you're honest, there's no longer a closeness and intimacy with Jesus. The relationship, it has grown cold and stale. So that's you, what, what do you do? How do you move forward in the relationship when that becomes the condition of your heart, when that becomes the condition of the relationship? How do, you, how do you move forward? How do you rebound from that? Well, listen to what Jesus says in verse five to the church in Ephesus and to us today as believers. He says this, consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. So Jesus, he gives them three steps to take. If they're recognizing, man, their their heart has drifted from Jesus, he says the first thing is this. You need to consider. You need to remember. Remember what your relationship with Jesus used to be. Remember the love you had for him. Remember the moment of your salvation when you turned to God and he rescued you and you wanted to be with him and and you loved him. And now realize how far you've fallen. Realize how how it's not what it used to be and understand it's not because Jesus has moved away from you. It's not because Jesus has put distance between you. It's because you have drifted from him. Jesus says, look, you need to remember. Remember what was and realize how far you've fallen. The second step is this. You need to repent. And what does it mean to repent? To turn in the other direction. Man, you're following me out of duty and obligation. Stop doing that and turn back to me. Turn back to the relationship. Follow me. Love me. Draw close to me again. So we remember, we repent, and then Jesus says we need to redo. We need to do the things that we did when we first trusted in Jesus. We need to go back to the start Back when it wasn't about duty, it wasn't about obligation, it wasn't about I have to do this, I'm checking boxes, but I love Jesus. I want to be with Jesus. I want to spend time with him. I want to serve him. Go back to that. What stirs your heart and your affections for Jesus? What makes you feel close and connected with him? What creates a sense of just love and gratitude for him? Whatever that is, maybe it's reading God's word. Maybe it's journaling. Maybe it's praying. Maybe it's singing. Maybe it's a certain place or location. Maybe it's serving. Maybe it's going on missions. Whatever it is that stirs your heart and your love for Jesus, Jesus is saying, go back to that and do that a lot. If there's something that makes you close to me, if there's something that creates that sense of love and gratitude, go and do that. Go back to the start. And then in verse 7, Jesus finishes addressing this church. He says this. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Jesus gives us this promise today. To those of us who will remember and repent and turn back to him, to those who are victorious and who overcome, they will be given the right to eat from the tree of life. What what is Jesus talking about? What is he referring to? He's taking us back to Genesis. He's taking us back to the Garden of Eden when we had a closeness and intimacy with God when there was nothing separating us, when there was nothing hindering our relationship, where we walked with God in the garden, unafraid and unashamed. You see that closeness that we had with God, it was lost in the fall. Sin, it entered into the world, it corrupted things, it broke things, and it separated us from God, and and we began to have to approach God out of fear. Fear. And out of shame, we came before God trembling, which is why Jesus came. And through Jesus' death and through his resurrection, our relationship with God, it can be restored. We can have closeness. We can have intimacy with God again. We can know him personally, and we can be with him forever. And I just wonder Have you forsaken the love that you had at first? Have you drifted away from from Jesus? Has your, your heart and your love grown cold and stale? Listen, Jesus, he desires a closeness with you. He hasn't gone anywhere. And he's inviting you today in this moment to turn back to him, to go back to the start when it was about love and relationship and not duty or or obligation. You know, whenever we take the the Lord's Supper together, we remember the body of of Jesus being broken. And we remember the, the blood of Jesus being poured out for our sin and for our shame. And the reason that happened was so that we could enter into a relationship with Jesus so that we could eat from the the tree of life, which is Jesus. And whenever we take the the Lord's Supper, the scriptures, they they encourage us to, to look in a number of different directions. We're to look inward at our heart. Is there any sin in our life that we haven't confessed, that we haven't turned from? Is there a relationship with a brother or sister in Christ that is fractured and there needs to be forgiveness or mercy shown? Is there an aspect in our life that Jesus is, is calling us to surrender that we've been holding on to? We, we need to look inward. But then we also look back. We look back to the cross. We look back to what Jesus did with gratitude for his, his, the blood that he paid, the penalty that he paid so that we could know God, so that we could have a relationship with him. And then we look forward with hope and confidence and anticipation that Jesus is coming back, that he's gonna return and make all things right and we will gather together for the great banquet, the great feast, and we will be with Jesus forever. We look inward, we look back, and we look forward. And Paul says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 26, for whenever you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So I wanna give you just a a moment now to take some time to, to reflect and to look in your heart, to look back to the cross and to look to the future when Jesus returns. So at this time, we're gonna take the Lord's Supper together and we ask that only those of you who have placed your faith and trust in Jesus and made a personal decision to follow him partake. You can remove the piece of bread. Jesus, he broke the bread and said, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And go ahead and open the juice. Jesus took the cup and said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. So, Father, we, we thank you that you desire a relationship with us that you sent Jesus to make a way when there was no way so that we could know you and love you and be with you forever. And Lord, today I, I pray for, for those in this room who, who are believers, who follow you. Maybe they followed you for, for years now, but if they're honest, if they take a look at their heart and their relationship with you, man, it's functioning more out of duty and obligation than it is love. They have drifted from you. They have forsaken that first love. God, right now, I I pray that they would begin to be reminded of what that relationship used to be, of the love they had for you, the desire to be with you and serve you. And God, that they would repent, that they would turn away from the the checklist that they're following and the routine and just the, the, the playing church, from it being a job, and that they would turn back to you, turn back towards the relationship and the closeness and the intimacy with you. God, help us to go back to the start. Renew the joy of our salvation. Thank you that you continue to pursue us. No matter how far we drift, no matter how far we run, you are there to receive us whenever we turn to you. Jesus, we love you. Pray all this in your name. Amen.